You are listening to the Compliance Conversations podcast by Healthicity. If you work in the healthcare industry, you know how crucial compliance is to your bottom line, your reputation, and the success of your organization as a whole. If this is your first time listening, welcome. A transcript of every Compliance Conversations episode can be found at www.healthicity.com resources, along with a ton of other thought leadership materials. You can add us to your RSS feed and iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today, we have a, a wonderful guest, Dr. James Dunnick, and we have uh, some very good topics to talk about today. Uh, Dr. Dunnick is a board-certified uh, internist as well as cardiologist, and he now is working full-time in, as a consultant with the Dunnick Group, and he spends a lot of time educating physicians and coders, and I thought it would really be interesting to hear a physician who's practiced for many, many years and who now is trying to help other physicians and practices and coders and even hospitals trying to educate doctors on documentation best practices. Uh, so welcome to the show, Dr. Dunnick. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate your time and your expertise. And, you know, I know um, you're in a pretty unique position being both a board-certified uh, physician with years of medical practice experience, but also somebody who, I guess a little bit more recently, who's focused on coding and documentation and auditing exper- uh, ex- expertise. Um, if we could just maybe start off with, you know, if you had a room full of doctors, what's the best advice you could give doctors today as it relates specifically to their documentation practices? I think that we all need to understand that this isn't a function of you did a good job putting in the pacemaker, doing the total hip, caring for the thyroid disease. It's not a function of how well you practice. It's becoming a marker of how well you document. Unfortunately, if we don't document correctly, then we run the risk of delays and denials. And now that the audit uh, trail has been lengthened from three years to six years, uh, payers are uh, allowed to go back six years. Now that that's the case, we just have this exposure. One of the issues is that we were never really taught how to do this very well in medical school. I think you could argue that perhaps uh, it's not necessary that we know how to do these things, but we do have to do it this way. So it's really important that you understand how an E&M evaluation and management, how an E&M note is constructed. I always tell physicians that an auditor is going to tear this apart, so let's just build it like she wants to see it. Let's reduce our audit risk exposure. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. You know, um, I I also went to medical school, didn't practice um, afterwards, though, and kind of got into compliance and, and educating physicians. And I think you and I have talked other times about um, how we would love to be able to see in like a medical school curriculum um, best practices and documenting. Because just like as parents are teaching children, you know, the routine of brushing their teeth and tying their shoes, you kind of learn those habits young. And doctors, you know, are learning to document a physical exam and, a, a, you know, a history and physical, and they're learning that from a clinical perspective. And it would be nice to be able to try to teach them at that moment, okay, this is what you're doing for clinical care. Uh, but in the real world, you're also faced with auditors and you're faced with 
uh, some of these other pressures that unfortunately might not be um, directed at clinical care. But like you said, these are this is what folks are going to look at when they are reviewing reviewing records. Have you done much training with younger doctors? I, I've done some in, in residencies, training doctors in residencies, but any thoughts on that? I think that would be a great thing to do, and you're right, to teach you how to do this the way the rules today say you have to do it. I think I can understand why medical schools don't do that. I had the opportunity about uh, two years ago to talk to uh, a president of the American College of Radiology, and I asked him about it, and he said, we teach medicine. We don't teach you how to staff your office or negotiate a loan to build your new building. We teach medicine. So I understand that from from their point of view. The problem is, if they're not going to teach it, then it falls on the shoulders of the individual physician and the hospital to, to do this education. One of the things that auditors look at very heavily is medical necessity. And if I haven't done a good job of defending why I did whatever I did, uh, a total hit, for example, then it is possible for the payer to not only deny the physician fee, but he can turn around and deny the facility fee, the anesthesiology fee, the family doctor's pre-op clearance fee, uh, all of this has been in jeopardy simply because no one ever took the time to uh, learn how to properly construct your note, data points, problem points, medical necessity, the table of risk. Uh, all of these things are what an auditor is going to look at. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought up the, the point of medical necessity. And I, and it's not just even in E&Ms, evaluation and management. It's also in procedures. And um, a little while back, I gave a, a webinar and I included a case of a cardiologist in Tennessee. And uh, it was alleged, uh, the whistleblower in this case actually was another physician. Uh, he was the medical director over the cardiology um, department in the hospital. And the physician that he was blowing the whistle against, his concern was that this physician was um, kind of exaggerating the severity of blockage in a, in a coronary artery, for example, um, and it came down to the medical record read just fine. But if you looked at the images, uh, the, the cardiology images did not jive with what was in the medical record. And so this, this medical director kind of blew, well, not kind of, did blow the whistle. Um, the physician ended up uh, paying back some money. But just as you just said, because that physician is doing these procedures in a hospital, the hospital is at risk for losing a lot of money because the government will say, you know what, that service was not medically necessary, not just for the doctor, but it wasn't medically necessary for the hospital either. And they had to return a lot of money. Have, have you dealt with, with cases or physicians in your consulting or in your experience where you've been the one who's tried to decide and help um, entities determine whether that procedure or that service was medically necessary? And how do you go about doing that if, if you've been involved in that? Yes, I've, I've done that, and it's all, again, about documentation. Now, the case you're describing sounds a little bit more uh, criminal to me if someone is describing a 30% lesion as a 85% uh, lesion and then goes ahead and performs an angioplasty. Uh, that sounds a little bit more, uh, as I say, uh, criminal. What I 
deal with predominantly is just people who uh, make errors in, in documentation. Uh, I was with a uh, cardiologist a, a few days ago who had uh, said in his uh, HPI, uh, patient presents with uh, stable chest pain two to three uh, times in a week. And when you get down to impression plan, it says uh, left heart catheterization today. So you see how a reviewer would look at that. It doesn't make any sense. What really happened, of course, was uh, every two weeks he'd been seeing the patient in his office constantly doubling the medicines. The chest pain is still occurring two to three times a week. Uh, and in fact, he neglected to mention that he'd had five minutes of rest pain last night, so he wants to do a heart cap today. So when you talk with the physician, uh, it becomes uh, a very good judgment call and you completely understand everything. You just didn't document enough. So I teach physicians or, or suggest to them when we're talking about uh, medical decision-making, what you and I used to call impression plan, and it's now called medical decision-making, uh, this is where I want you to be wordy. This is where I want you to explain to the auditor how hard it is to do uh, what we do every day. The procedure notes, E&M notes, there are just such strict rules in what to put where, who may put what where, uh, and a lot of times uh, physicians look at electronic health records as, oh, this is an efficient way to do this, but in Medicare's eyes, doing it that way is fraud. So there are just a lot of aspects that go into protecting the money you've earned, and then, as you point out, the fallout to other people. If you've done something wrong, the fallout to other people can be uh, other providers on your team. Yeah. I like what you said about, you know, you're, when you're teaching doctors about the medical decision, documenting the medical decision-making portion, that you want them to be wordy. Um, I remember training doctors as well. And um, what I often would say is, look, you spend all this time in medical school and training in residency and in years of practice. And to you, all of this stuff is happening in your head pretty quickly. And you kind of, because you've seen these cases over and over again, you kind of, you know, already know what the conclusion is. But I always tell them, look, you're the artist. You get to paint the picture. And you can paint the picture with, you know, stick figures. Or you can paint the picture with a lot of detail that demonstrates, oh, you as a physician had to go through this clinical decision-making in your mind that happens invisibly. <laughs> but try to get that invisible thought process down on paper, and that really can demonstrate all what you were thinking. That's kind of hard for docs to do, though. It, it really is, especially uh, when we don't understand uh, the rules. Uh, nobody ever taught us this, and we don't realize what an auditor is going to do. Yeah. Uh, an example of the confusion might be if uh, you have a note, an H&P, a consult note, and it says chief complaint chest pain and your history of present illness starts out, uh, John presents with chest pain. Two years ago, he had a bypass surgery. Unfortunately, he hasn't quit smoking and he is still 50 pounds overweight. Well, when an auditor looks at that, uh, she looks at it differently than you and I do. I understand, oh, chest pain, that guy had bypass surgery, that's very important, and I understand why you put it there. I understand why you put the tobacco and the weight there. But for an auditor, 
the tobacco slides down to social history. The bypass surgery slides down to past medical history. So when I'm adding up your points in the HPI, you're only left with chest pain. And in fact, you lose the chest pain because that was counted as your chief complaint of chest pain. So you're sitting there with an HPI that is of zero value or the same value as if you dictated absolutely nothing. So what would you recommend to correct that one? So that's a great example. What what could somebody add to that, appropriately add to that, so that they don't miss those points, so to speak? There are eight elements that make up the HPI, and depending on how many of those you address, your uh, claim level will go up appropriately. So for example, if you're in the office, your choices are a 99211 up through 99215 for an established patient. If you're in the hospital uh, doing a new HMP, it might be a 99201 to 205. But again, the level that you can claim is a function in the HPI of how many elements you use. Then in the physical exam, it's a function of, of that, and in the medical decision-making, that's where the problem points and, and data points come into play. So uh, there actually are ways you can learn this, and uh, it's not quite as complicated as it first seems, but we've come full circle back to the fact that we do have to learn it, and uh, it falls on the shoulders, usually, of the hospital to train their physicians because the hospital has so much at stake uh, if this is done poorly. Yeah, good point. Um, and you mentioned a few minutes ago electronic health records, and I want to maybe shift gears a little bit and go to that topic um, because it's becoming electronic health records are becoming more and more prominent. And I know you have worked a great deal in educating physicians about best practices for electronic health records. What would you say are some of the biggest mistakes or risks that physicians or others tend to make in an electronic health record? And, and maybe you could also touch, touch a little bit on this copy and paste phrase that we hear all the time. Sure. I think uh, I might list uh, two things as, as perhaps being the most uh, common uh, problems. And I agree with you that uh, one is called cloning whether we describe that as copy-forward, copy-paste, super-clicking. Uh, when you're clicking, for example, a review of systems, did you really ask all of those questions, or did you just click all of those boxes? The same thing with a physical exam. Did you really do all of those aspects of the physical exam, or did you just click uh, those boxes? So that's uh, called super-clicking. One of the problems with copy-forward, copy-paste, and uh, I think this makes sense from Medicare's point of view or any payer's point of view. If I see you in March and I did a past uh, medical history, a review of systems, I did those sorts of things, and then I see you again in June, well, if I just bring forward the old past medical history, the old review of systems from Medicare's point of view, I paid you for that in March. You may not bring the same thing forward into June and expect me to pay you for that again. So you understand how it sort of makes sense from Medicare's point of view uh, that it would be uh, double payment for the same service. So that copy forward here is a problem. 
many of the electronic health records will automatically populate your hospital note. Uh, hospitalists are a, a very important part of our service. And when they bring up the progress note for today that I'm going to type in, it often has uh, today's laboratory values already populated. Well, from a problem point and data point point of view, you want to have reviewed the x-ray in the labs, you get credit for that, but when the machine has just brought that onto your note, there's no documentation that you looked at it. So there are certain ways to establish in the auditor's mind that you did indeed, you are really aware of the follow-up chest x-ray, the follow-up CBC, uh, whatever test it is, is we're talking about. And it's just uh, defending yourself and defending your uh, documentation so that, again, you can pass the scrutiny of an auditor. So is it as simple as saying, so I reviewed today's labs or I, I reviewed the labs in the record that you know showed up today or something. So making some sort of affirmative comment, and, and is that bringing it in, or what do you suggest? Uh, yes, and give me an answer. I reviewed today's hemoglobin, and it is stable at 10.1. Uh, I reviewed today's chest X-ray, and it appears to be having an improvement in that left lower lobe pneumonia. So we want to make a comment that clearly shows the auditor that you did indeed see the lab because you're verbalizing the result of the lab. Yeah, good point. A, sec a second really common mistake, and, and I understand, uh, I don't want to really call this laziness, I, I understand we have a lot of support personnel that help us do a lot of things, and sometimes the physician will ask the support personnel to enter in some of the notes. But there are, again, strict rules as to what has to be entered into the note by the billing provider and what may be entered in by ancillary services. And we make that mistake a great deal, again, not out of trying to do something uh, inappropriately, but just that we didn't realize there were those uh, strict rules. So it comes down to uh, education for us, and as the number of uh, auditors has uh, been increased, and uh, I just had an email about a month ago from a uh, sort of a watchdog group or something, the Medicare audits were up 936% in 2015, uh, and as these things become uh, more and more, because it's a, a lucrative field for the payers, they can get uh, money back, and of course the payers are looking for fellows especially. Uh, like the uh, cardiologist you described, that may be uh, on purpose trying to gain more money than they really deserve. But while the payers are looking for those folks, they're finding an incredible number of us who just made a mistake because we didn't realize what all of the rules were. We didn't realize that we were doing some things that the payers don't want us to do. Yeah. Uh, on the electronic health records topic. So I've heard a lot of doctors tell me when I go out and try to teach and educate, they'll say, well, what's the point of having an electronic health record if it's not going to be easier for me? So I, I kind of feel for them and I, I get what they're saying. It's, you know, these electronic systems were supposed to make things easier. So how, what is different like with a paper record 
and now let's say they're using an electronic health record, how can they use it to make it things easier um, and using that functionality without getting in trouble of these cloning and, and that sort of thing? Any other thoughts on that particular issue? When I get asked to go to a hospital, they have, uh, uh, as you can imagine, any number of the different medical uh, record companies uh, out there. And I always uh, tell them uh, all medical records have pluses and minuses. All of the electronic systems have their, their good and their bad. So with this particular one, let me show you how to take advantage of the things that it does really well, and let me show you how to uh, minimize the things that it does really poorly. Let's focus on what you actually have to enter, and let's focus on how you can uh, jump around a little bit within the electrical uh, chart, the electronic chart, so that uh, you're making as few clicks as is possible. Uh, I completely understand the pushback from the physicians because they are slowing. It does improve uh, handwriting errors, and it does uh, make it very nice when I'm sitting in the emergency room and I can bring up my office chart in uh, seconds, or I can see my partner's old note or the old heart cath. There are really nice features about electronic health records uh, for me. I can audit charts in Nebraska from my home, uh, and you never go anywhere. You just use the internet. Right. But there are absolutely slowing limitations to it from the standpoint of productivity. So it's important to understand where you can uh, take a, a shortcut or where you can take advantage of one of the rules that allows you to do something uh, without trying to take advantage of a rule that seems like it ought to be there, but turns out it's not there. Yeah, like I remember as you were talking, a, a doctor came to my mind that I trained years and years ago. He was a, a internist, but he specialized in diabetes. Um, and so the majority of the patients that he saw kind of f followed the same type of history, physical exam. And he, you know, he, he kind of did the same thing. So he created a template that for him was useful. And then the details about that particular patient might be slightly different, but it still followed this template, and that saved him a lot of time. Is that something that you know you've seen, and that's okay? Versus what are what are some of the things to watch out for if a doctor develops his own template for a given type of patient population? Well, I would make several comments about that. First, it's it's impressive to me how many people have designed a template that isn't. Um, audit consistent. It's not the same template that an auditor is going to use. Uh, so I would design a template that matches up with the auditor. For example, the auditor is going to tear it apart. Let's build it like she wants to see it. Uh, they just want to check off their boxes. And as soon as you develop the uh, reputation that you're doing a really good job, then it's going to have uh, decreased scrutiny. There certainly is uh, some amount of automatic and uh, normal routine scrutiny, but you don't want to be the person that it looks like you're doing a lot of things wrong. So it's important to have your template uh, be consistent with current auditing processes. The other uh, aspect about templates are it depends uh, exactly what we mean by templates because you want to absolutely stay away from uh, the copy forward, the copy paste 
type things. That uh, is uh, very aware. The payers are very aware of that, uh, and they know how to hunt for it. Uh, normal humans, we just wouldn't use exactly the same phrase uh, day in and day out. So it, it really can be shown, I think, and, and the burden of proof sort of falls on us yeah. to show that we didn't do something uh, correct. And even if you bring a, a guy like me or somebody else in to try to defend you during the audit, and even if I win, it's taken a year, and you end up getting uh, 70 cents on the dollar a year from now, and you had to pay all the man hours to defend the uh, uh, audit to put your stuff together. So I think that best is just doing it correct at uh, time zero, and that just means having someone uh, show you all of the aspects of ICD-10 and medical necessity. Uh, when I teach ICD-10, it really uh, is logical. They really uh, don't worry about the fact that people will always frighten you and say there's 150,000 total codes. Don't worry about that. All we have to really understand are a couple of fundamental rules like code first, code also, and understand that you can't say stroke. We have to talk about right versus left. We have to talk about which artery is involved. Uh, we just have to be more specific than we're used to dictating. But again, once you show, I actually use uh, slides, there are snapshots right out of the ICD-10 book, and say, look, here's hypertension, but look what the coder has to pick from. So just give her the words that uh, she needs to select the correct code. Uh, I always say, put what she wants to see where she wants to see it. Yeah. Everyone but feels that the coder turned in the bill. Well, if the coder messes up, that's the coder's fault, and, and that's not true. Uh, I agree, the coder in the billing department probably turned in the bill, but it went in under your name, it went in under your tax ID, and the payer comes back at the person who uh, charged the bill, the person who received the money, that's who the payers come after. So maybe it wasn't even your error, you had no idea what claim level they were turning in. But if they're wrong, uh, you're the one who has to uh, defend that and defend why you should have that money. Yeah. Excellent, excellent conversation. Um, we're we're coming up at the end now uh, here of our time together. I'd love to have you back at some point because I, I think we could um, pick up on some of these other topics and and things that you you've discussed. I wanted to to thank you for your expertise and and for your time, uh, and like to thank everybody who's listening listened into our episode today. And until uh, next time, uh, we'll look forward to to having you back. Thank you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed being here.